And here's the story. Someone in the crowd said to him, this is verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he continued, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. And he goes on. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but these are the words of our Lord, and they will stand forever. Maybe you've heard of the name David Foster Wallace. He's one of the most respected essayists uh, from America over the last 100 years. In fact, um, several years ago, he was named by Time Magazine one of the most 100 influential novelists uh, in the last century. And in 2005, which was just three years before he passed away, Wallace gave this, which has become now a very famous speech, a commencement address at King and College. And he later it was printed, and the essay was entitled, This is Water. And there's some really cool videos out there. You could watch this speech, and people put graphics on it and all that. I want to read you a section of the speech. Um, because Wallace, who was not a Christian as far as I know, he talks about the reality uh, that we all worship something. And he talks about how the thing that we worship, what it takes from us and what it gives us really interesting. Let me read you a paragraph from that commencement address. He's talking to college students as they're graduating. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. You worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's piercing, right? And he goes on to say all these other things, but he talks about that one of the biggest problems about these forms of worship in our lives is that they are totally unconscious. Like these are not decisions that we make or that we're aware of that we're making. Deep down, we slip into these patterns day after day and we live our lives worshiping something. And we don't even know it. The Ava brothers are also pretty good at defining and, and dissecting culture. And, and their song, Ill With Want, picks this theme up so perfectly. Let me read you 
couple of lines from their song where they say, I am sick with wanting, and it's evil how it's got me, and every day is worse than the one before. The more I have, the more I think, I'm almost where I need to be if only I could get a little more. And the chorus says, something has me. Oh, something has me, acting like someone I don't want to be. Something has me, oh, something has me, acting like someone I know isn't me, ill with want and poisoned by this ugly greed. Those are two examples from basically cultural apologetics, who, who, apologists who have picked up that we give our lives to something so often not knowing it, and then it has us. It has us in its grip. And that's exactly what this parable is about. Jesus is specifically uh, preaching on greed. He's talking about how greed is the thing that could have you, and you don't even know it. And it shows what greed can do to us. And we're going to talk about greed a lot uh, over the next few minutes. But I want you to see that greed is also like one thing to slide under the microscope that really a lot of what we are talking about tonight applies to all sorts of other areas that we would simply call idols categorical idols in our lives, greed being one of them, but there's so many others that I'm going to name and we're going to work through tonight. Like Wallace said, money and body and power and intellect, but we would also add to that acceptance and control and security or anything else. Here's the context in Jesus' parable. You may have picked up on it when he's talking to Jesus in the middle of teaching, when he's interrupted by apparently one of two brothers who basically invites Jesus in to like settle this family dispute. But really what he wants him to do is tell him he's right Um, which is normal of all of us. And so he invites Jesus into this family dispute, and Jesus sees right through this guy, and he's like my friend's pastor who they call Laser Beam. They call this pastor Laser Beam because Laser Beam is a guy, um, his real name's Mark, but Laser Beam's a guy that if you walk into Laser Beam's office and you like start talking about the problem that you have, or the frustration, or the thing that you just like can't understand, he will look at you and he will say, you know what your real problem is? That's laser beam. He's a great pastor. He's a good guy. But he zeroes in on the problem. And he says, you know what your real problem is? That's, that's exactly what Jesus does in this. This brother comes and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, you know what your real problem is? You love money too much. And he gives this warning. He says, take care, which other translations say, watch out, watch out, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells them the story that there was a man whose land produced abundantly so much so that he had nowhere else to store his crops. And so the man just kind of came up with this plan. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then he begins to fill up these barns and store the excess. So much so that he could then relax. And he tells himself, as the story says, soul, you have ample goods stored up for yourself. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. You know what his real problem was? Is he loved his stuff too much. It consumed him. And he only loved his stuff. If you'll notice, there's no acknowledgement here of the Lord's provision in this man's life. And I think that's on purpose from Jesus. Um, This is ultimately why he's a fool. Jesus says the land produced plentifully. And we know that it is the Lord who causes the produce to be produced. That's the same word. Produced. And he gives no thanks to the God who is behind the land. Over and over again, I don't know if you picked up. He says, I, 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 more than a dozen times. 
in just a couple of sentences. He is consumed with himself. He is self-consumed, self-conceited, and self-exalting. And I wonder if any of us are fools in that way, in that way alone, seeing only your production and not seeing the God that is behind it. Seeing the test score, the grade, and forgetting that it is God who has provided the intellect and the opportunity. Seeing the internship or the job offer and forgetting that it is God who's providing this path and the skills necessary for the work. Or seeing the score that you had in that game or your PR that you set this weekend and, and forgetting that it is God who provides even the physical abilities to go out and play. I mean, we, we all are fools in this way, kind of trusting in what we've done. We're more like the rich fool than we'd want to admit. Um, just imagine how annoying his Instagram feed had to be, right? Like just an like obnoxious post of overflowing vats, like a picture of his new tractor, hashtag blessed. Like he, he just like, it just comes out of him. Let me be clear about something, though, that I think a lot of people could take passages like this and just, just you know, point their finger against money. Money's not the issue here. Like, money's not the problem. You know that, right? Being rich is not the problem. God uses riches in many, many ways. If you become rich, then great. You will support Clemson RUF for years to come, and we will thank you for your donation. Like, riches are not the issue. Um. The Bible says it's the love of money. It's the root of all kind of evil. It's not just money itself. Dave Ramsey, the financial peace guy, he likes to say that money itself is amoral. It doesn't have morals in and of itself. It's what you do with the money that matters. Uh, Money's a thing. It's an object. If you begin to love it and serve it and obey it, then it becomes a problem. This is how Ramsey illustrates it. He says money is like a brick. And with a brick, you can do great things or you can do harmful things. With a brick, you could build a school or you could throw it through a window. Like the brick itself is not the issue. It's what you do with a brick. Does that make sense? So that's the same with money. The thing that makes the fool the fool in this parable is not that he has money. It's that he gives his life to it. It becomes his idol. He loves the gift more than he loves the gift giver. That's the issue. Um, it, it reminds me of, uh, and I thought about this story today with um, Lucy, our oldest daughter. Uh, a couple of years ago, I told you about our neighbor, Mr. Mike. I've talked about Mike about four times already this semester. Uh, Mike was our next door neighbor in Huntsville. And he put his house up for sale um, about three years ago. They were going to move out of the neighborhood if they could sell their house and, um, and find another place. And turns out he couldn't sell it. Jokes on him, we moved. But he, he put his house up for sale. And one day, Lucy, our oldest daughter, saw the for sale sign. And she runs out to Mr. Mike out in his driveway. And she just starts crying. And she's like, Mr. Mike, you're moving? No, please don't move. And we're all kind of like, ah. What's up with that? Because, like, they were not close. <laughs> they just weren't. It was an overreaction. We were like, what is... And we are all kind of like, oh, that's so sweet. They may move. they got to sell their house. It's going to be a while, this whole thing. And she was like, okay, okay. Are you going to take the frog with you? Okay, so here's the issue. There was this little frog statue in Mike's backyard that Lucy loved. And it was like a, a water thing. What do you call it? Water collector? 
you call those things? Yeah, that. Uh, and she would go to it every day, and she loved seeing the frog. And when she said that, like, her real motive was revealed. And, and Mike was like, oh, that's why you don't want me to move. We're like that, right? Like, money's not the thing. But money exposes what's going on in our hearts. What do you love most? Is it the gift or is it the gift giver? And that will be exposed in our lives. And Jesus says this is where foolishness is exposed. And the tricky thing is we see it so easily in other people. It's so hard to see it in ourselves. It's so hard to dissect our own hearts in this way, especially in our culture where we're told that you can do anything you want to do. Good for you. Study anything you want to study. You know, go get that job that you want to get so that you can live in that neighborhood that you want to live in and buy that house that you want to buy and drive those cars you want to drive. Like, it's all up to you. Go and do those things. And somehow in that process, our possessions become our security. Our possessions become our idols. And we don't even know it. Something has us, as the Avert brothers put it. It reminds me of, like, one of the worst news stories I've ever heard in my life. And um, I didn't really hear it on the news, so it's probably not true. Uh, it's more of like an urban legend. So let's just pretend that, I don't know, you can take this however you want. If it's true or not, I don't know. You can look it up on Snopes, but who trusts them? Here's the story. It's the story of the woman in the boa constrictor. You've heard this urban legend, right? It's that woman who had the boa constrictor for a pet, and she liked to sleep with it in her bed. Boa constrictor in her bed, because that's normal. And there was this time where her boa constrictor got really sick, and it, and it wouldn't eat. It wouldn't eat anything that she would leave for it. And so she got really concerned about her pet snake, and she takes it to the vet. And the vet's like, oh, the, the, your snake's not sick. It's just starving itself. And she's like, it's starving itself? And she's like, he was like, yeah, it's just starving itself, because this is what these snakes do when they want to eat something really big. They starve themselves for a while in order to prepare for the big meal. So, uh, it's the worst story ever. The thing that it was starving itself for, if you're not with us, was probably her. Okay, that's the worst story ever. But it makes this point so perfectly. You may think that you have your money... And you have your possessions and you have your wealth plans in your control. But in reality, they might just have you. I worry about us in this way. I worry about us in this kind of system, this American promise, dream, retire early, being paraded around system that we're all a part of. When we put our security in our bank account, we place our hope in our plans and we say to ourselves, soul, You have ample goods for yourself. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God says that is foolishness. Because we put our trust in something that is simply not trustworthy. It can never deliver. It can never provide real security. And that's how idols work. They make promises that they can never come through on. 
There's a great book called Jesus Outside the Lines that another pastor in uh, the PCA, which is what RUF, comes out of. Um, he's a national. He's written this book called Jesus Outside the Lines, and he has this wonderful chapter on, on greed and money issues. And he gives these examples. I've heard a lot of these before, but he kind of puts them all together to talk about how famous people show us that there really is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Let me read you his examples. He says some of the world's wealthiest people have experienced letdown when they hit their coveted number. The story goes that having made millions in the oil industry, John D. Rockefeller was asked how much money was enough. His answer, do you remember his answer? One more dollar. Then it'll be enough. Jim Carrey, rich and famous actor, said that being rich and famous did not solve any of his problems. Quarterback Tom Brady, after winning three Super Bowl victories, this is a little outdated, Marrying the world's top supermodel and achieving an annual household income of $76 million per year said in an interview that this cannot be all that there is. There has to be something more. Kobe Bryant, who by the age of 24 had millions of dollars, a beautiful wife, and a beachfront mansion, told Newsweek that he did not even believe in happiness. These are like extreme examples. We will never have what they have, but we will step into the same trap looking for the same answers that cannot be delivered. Just another dollar, just a better car, just a bigger house, and all along the way it is eating us, ill with want and poisoned by this ugly greed. And by the way, as long as you go into ministry, this totally goes away. Like, greed's not a thing as long as you go into ministry. It's true. It's not true. Uh, We humble servants of the Lord certainly feel this probably more than anyone. Um, You don't think that I, you know, a grown man in my mid-30s, don't look around at my college friends now? You know, like I see the vacations they take. That's the one that always gets me. It's not the houses. That sometimes gets me too. Or Or the cars. It's the vacations, like these exotic adventures, just these things that they're doing after they partner with their, their firm or they've been in this business or this promotion that they got. Like, this is a parable for me. You fool. Why trust in something that can never deliver? Jesus tells us how much security really is found in riches when, the, when, when God goes to the guy in the story. Did, did you hear that moment toward the end where Jesus says, and then God said to him, you're going to die tonight. What's going to happen with your stuff now? And Jesus like drops the mic and the story's over. And that's how it ends. Jesus just literally says, then what? Foolishness is exposed in the result in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He may be rich in possessions, but his heart is poor toward God. So we trust in our money to provide only what Jesus can provide. And we begin to serve and obey our money and not Jesus at all. And then money begins to call the shots in our lives. And we, so it's like you think you're leading the dog on the leash, but it's the dog that is pulling you all along. And I get it. You may say that even talk about this with college students. That is foolishness, right? I'm looking at like the most broke people in the county right now. Like you can't even go to Chipotle more than once this month. I get it. <laughs> and so like even to talk about this is foolishness. But you, you and I know that it's not foolishness. Because really what Jesus is getting at is the heart issue. 
Greed being one application of that. And I don't know if you realize this. Luke chapter 12, it's worth reading around this parable. We're going to read all around it tonight. But Luke chapter 12 is all about anxiety. It's interesting, right? It's actually all about anxiety and fear. It comes up so many times throughout this chapter. It's right after this, and I read just a teaser, that Jesus goes into that. Why worry about these things? So, it's not foolishness to talk about this with college students. Because one day you won't be broke. One day some of you will be very loaded. And even the thought of that makes you so excited. You see the foolishness is there. And so, here's, here's how I want to think about this for a second. What are the things that make you most anxious? That's the issue behind the brother's question, by the way. He's anxious. He's worried that he's not going to get his due. And so he wants Jesus to settle the dispute to say, yeah, you should get what, you are, what you're owed. And he's anxious that he's not going to get it. What is it that makes you anxious? What is it that as you go about your week that just makes you, it's that, that like what I describe as the, that pit in your, the, the stomach issue that like uh, something's not right. What is it that makes you feel that something's not right? It could be money for you. Um, it could be that you're resting in your stuff and something's going wrong with your stuff or something's missing from your stuff or you don't have all that you want to have. But it also could be your plans um, that you're resting in your, your goals, the things that you want to happen and those things aren't coming through. It could be your relationships and your grades. There's so many different areas that we are looking to to provide only what Jesus can provide. And this is an old problem. And I do want you to see that in the context of the scripture, but also I want to take you back for a second to Isaiah. Um, the idea of idolatry comes up a lot in Isaiah. And it's the same problem, different manifestation. I was just reading recently, Isaiah chapter 44, where God's people were being rebuked once again for making idols. They were making them out of wood and gold, and they were literally bowing down to them and worshiping them and wanting them to deliver something for them. We do the same thing. It looks different. But here's what God did when he went and talked to them through the prophet Isaiah. He literally said, this is in Isaiah 44. I'm not going to quote it directly, but paraphrase here. He said, do they know you? Do your idols have hearts? Can they understand you? He literally says, do they have eyes? Can they see do they have ears? Can they listen to you? What's he saying? He's exposing the foolishness of our idolatries. The folly that we give ourselves, our time, our anxieties, our hopes to these things that can't even hear us. They can't see us. They don't know us. So how can you begin to identify your idols? And I want to be practical here. I want to give you some questions to think about. These are a few diagnostic questions. These aren't for me. It's a collection from different other folks. But how would you respond? And I'm not going to give you much time to respond, but you may want to write these down. How would you respond to these questions? What do I fear more than anything else? Here's another one. What do I need to have right now to make me really happy? Or what do I turn to when things are not going well for me? 
When things get difficult, where do I go? I thought about this one today. Where does my mind go when I try to rest? What do I think about? Two more. What makes me feel the most worthy? What am I proudest of? And the last one is a fill in the blank. How would you fill in the blank here? Life would no longer have any meaning if I did not have what? Those are piercing questions, right? It's not that the thing itself is bad. Money is not the issue. Money is amoral. But it exposes the heart. Think about some of those things. And now what I want to do just for a couple of minutes is how do we fight against it? Maybe you're very aware of some of the areas of idolatry that you have in your life. What do we do about it? Well, just like every week, I want to point you to see where Shakespeare has written himself into the story. Have you found him? Well, actually, in this particular parable, he's notable only by his absence. Jesus doesn't really have himself in the story. There's the God kind of character at the end. But he's notable by his absence. And where money and possessions become the God of our life, Jesus is also notable by his absence. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, the famous quote where he talks about that the problem with our desires is not that they are too strong, but that they are actually too weak. We might say the reason I struggle with pornography is that I just really want to be having sex. I just, I feel it too strongly. Or the reason that I struggle with alcohol or whatever drug is that I... I just want to check out sometimes. Like, I just want to, I want to rest. Or the reason I'm short-tempered or angry, it's not because I'm a mad person, but it's just because I really like filling my schedule with other things, and when people get in the way, it kind of messes me up. Like, the issue with those desires is not that we desire something too strongly, it's that we aren't desiring the right things. Here's Lewis's quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Listen, the answer for our money idol issues is not to love the object less. It is to love the right object in the first place. It's to not stop being pleased with the wrong things, but it is to be pleased with the right things. Or to put it as the old Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers uh, put it, he said the only way to dispossess the old heart of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. I know that's super old language, but let me say it again. This is an incredible quote to so practical and we'll work out what it means he says the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new affection now we know this to be true in a purely secular sense because like how do you suddenly go from that breakup that was absolutely devastating that was so hard you thought you would never get over them to like never mind i'm over them 
and I'm dating this other person now. How does that happen? You've traded in an old affection for a new one. That's a very you know, secular way to think about it. But now how does the gospel apply? Our application tonight is to not love less, but to love more. To love the one who has given us all that we actually need. To know that Jesus gives us lasting riches in his kingdom. He makes us royalty as sons and daughters of God through his death and his resurrection. He takes those of us who are spiritually poor. And he gives us eternal riches and glory. And to know that there was a cost involved in that, that that Paul puts it when he says, this is the grace of Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's what it means. This means we can give up our trusting in our idols and begin to trust the only one who's trustworthy. To place the security of our careers, the security of our accounts, the hope of our futures on the one who has given us ample reason to trust him with our everything. He is the only one who has secured hope and he secures it through his death and through his resurrection. How much more can he give us all that we need in this life? If that's the promise of eternal life, how much more can he provide for us even now? Let me go back to Isaiah 44. What's beautiful about that passage is right after God says to them, do they have ears and they can hear you? Do they have eyes that they can see you? Do they have hearts that they can know you? You know what he says to them? He says, but I am your God. I know you. I love you. I have forgiven you. He's the only one. He is the only thing worth trusting. Our old affections have to be outloved by much deeper ones. Let me illustrate it this way. If you watch This Is Us, if you don't, you should. If you watch This Is Us, I'm not going to give any spoilers here. This is last season. Um... We learn some things about Jack that make us all a little uncomfortable. Jack's the dad of the family. And Jack has an issue with alcohol abuse. And it comes up several times toward the end of that first season. I guess that's a spoiler alert, but that ended a while back. Um, And we learn that at one point in his life and in his marriage, he was really kind of wrecked by his alcoholism, just like his father. And it uh, really hurt their marriage, and it hurt his parenting. And when this problem kind of comes back up in his life at another time, and his wife, Rebecca, talks to him about it, she says, how did you get through it the first time? How did you get over it? You know what his answer was, right? The answer was, it was you. And it was our kids. The way that he got through his issues, and not over them, don't, don't diagnose it too much. Alcoholism is a, is a very difficult thing. But the way he got through some hard things was with a greater love. The old idol is fought with the expulsive power of a deeper affection. And this is us, literally. That's why that show is so brilliant. I think it's written by counselors. It has to be. 
because they get me. This is us. Like what we need is an expulsive power to explode the old affection and redirect our new affections to a greater love. And so how do we fight against idols of greed or sex or people approval or comfort or affirmation or success through a greater affection toward the one who really can give us life? When those things never can. Seeing that you have really been loved by Christ. Therefore you are secure in who you really are in Him. That you have all the approval that you could ever possibly need already in Christ. That you have more affirmation than you could even understand in Christ. That you have the promise of real comfort and real hope and real satisfaction in Christ. All of the things that we are seeking from these idols that can never deliver are found at home in Christ. If you feel that something has you, Or maybe you're just now starting to see it. I hope that you will look to Christ. Who can bring about freedom in a real and lasting way in your heart. To see that you have been loved. And begin to live and repent and fight in response to what he's done. And this really does bring a lot of freedom. There's so much application I could do. But I don't want to spend a ton of time on that. Let me just say, you know, how does being freed in Christ then relate to our idolatry of greed. Well, you you begin to be free with your money. And you start to actually give toward needs. And tithe, by the way, tithe isn't something that like is a helpful thing to start when you're out of college. It's actually a really great principle to begin applying to your life right now. If you make $35 a month, then find a way to put $3.50 in the offering plate Sunday. Because it's showing your heart. Are you willing? Are you willing to let God use this money toward other ends? We could talk about tithe forever. I could show you where that's true in Scripture. But you see what it does? It frees you up to trust God that He can provide. It also frees you up to look after the needs of other people around you when there's an opportunity to serve. Um, It frees you in relationships. So now you're not just begging for people's approval all the time and giving yourself to that end. But now you're actually looking for opportunities to encourage because you have all the approval you need. You have all the affirmation you need in Christ. Now you can actually turn your attention to encourage others rather than drain something from them. Or in your own sense of time. You know, you're busy, right? You are busy. Um, But understanding that God has you where he has you and that you are loved and valued not because you're busy, but because you're his then you actually can start to make miniature decisions with your time in order to be a little more freed up to actually care for other people in your life a little bit more. This is how the gospel can bring freedom into those areas and, and so many others. So I end with this. As David Foster Wallace said, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. So let's fight. Let's fight to worship the only one who is actually worthy of all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you give us this parable, a difficult one, another difficult one, but your words for your people. I pray that you would help us to see where you see us. Help us to believe that you really do know us and love us. 
Help us to open our mouths because you hear us. And show us over and over again where we can begin to have deeper affections for you that will slowly but surely begin to knock down those lesser affections for things that can never deliver. So show us these things, we pray this week, so that we could serve you more faithfully and serve others around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.